Chapter Thirty of the Fighting Shepherdess. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fighting Shepherdess by Caroline Lockhart, Chapter Thirty, Her Day. Kate stood before a teetering knobless bureau, reflecting upon the singular coincidence which should place her in the same room for her second social affair in the Prouty House as to that which she had been assigned upon her first. The Bureau had been new then, and to her inexperienced eyes had looked the acme of luxurious magnificence. She recalled as vividly as though the lapse of time consisted of days, not years, the round, eager face that had looked out of the glass. She had been only seventeen, that other girl, and every emotion that she felt was to be read in her expressive face and in her candid eyes. It was different, the face of this woman of twenty-eight, who calmly regarded Kate. She turned her head and took in the room with a sweeping glance. It was there, in the middle of the floor, that she had torn off and flung her wreath. It was in the corner over there that she had thrown her bunting dress. On the spot where the rug with the pink child and red-eyed dog used to be, she stood with the tears streaming down her cheeks, tears of humiliation, of fierce, outraged pride, feeling that the most colossal crushing tragedy that possibly could come into any life had fallen upon her. It came back to the last detail, that evening of torture, the audible innuendos and the whispering behind hands, the lifted eyebrows, and the exchange of mocking looks, the insolent eyes of Nefkins, and the final deliberate insult. She lived it all again as she stood before the mirror, calmly arranging her hair. And Huey, her hands paused in midair. Could she ever forget that moment of agony on the stairs when she thought he was going to fail her? that he was ashamed and a coward. But what a thoroughbred he had been. She could better appreciate now the courage it had required. Afterward, in the moonlight on the way home, his contrition, his sympathy, his awkward tenderness. I love you. I'll love you as long as I live. Her lips parted as she listened to the boyish voice, vibrating, passionate. He had come to her again, and she had sent him away for the sake of the hour that was shortly to arrive. She had reached her goal. More than she had dared hope for in her wildest dreams had come to her at last. She had money, power, success, a name. A choking lump rose in her throat. It was no longer of any use to refuse to admit it to herself. She wanted Hugh. She wanted him. With all her heart and soul and strength, nothing and no one else. She threw herself upon the uninviting bed, and in the hour when she should have been exultant, Kate cried. Throughout Prouty, among the socially select, the act of dressing for the function at the Prouty House was taking place. This dinner, given to Prentice by the members of the Booster Club, was the most important event from every viewpoint that had taken place since the town was incorporated, and it would show the bankrupt stockholders where they were at. 
since Prentice had reserved the announcement of his decision regarding the irrigation project for this occasion. In addition, he had asked the privilege of inviting a guest, which was granted as readily as if he had requested permission to appear in his bathrobe, for they had no desire to offend a man who in their minds occupied an analogous position with the ravens that brought food to Elijah, starving in the wilderness. Prentice had been investigated, and his rating obtained. All that Toomey had claimed for him was found out to be the truth. He was an indisputable millionaire, with ample means to put through whatever he undertook. The effect of Prentice's presence was noticeable throughout the town, and innumerable small extravagances were committed on the strength of what was going to happen when the project went through. But in no person was the change so marked as in Toomey, who felt that he had come into his own at last. As an old and dear friend of Prentice's, his prestige was almost restored. He fairly reeled with success, while, with no one daring to refuse him credit because of the influence he was presumed to exert, he ate tinned lobster for breakfast to show that he could. If Prentice suspected that he was being made capital of, exploited, and exhibited like a rare bird, there was nothing in his manner to indicate that he entertained the thought. While it was true that his first friendliness towards Toomey never came back, his impersonal, business-like courtesy in their intercourse was beyond reproach. A report had been current that Kate and Toomey's millionaire knew each other. Someone in the Prouty house had seen them meet, but as she returned almost immediately to the ranch and had not been in town since, the rumor died for want of nourishment. No one but Mrs. Toomey gave it a second thought, but she gave it many thoughts. It stuck in her mind, and she could not get it out. To her the resemblance between the two was very noticeable, and another meeting with Prentice made her marvel that no one observed it but herself. In spite of the different spelling of the name, was there, perchance, some relationship? The persistent thought filled her with a vague disquietude. It was so strongly in her mind while they dressed for the affair at the Prouty House that Toomey's conversation was largely a soliloquy. Surveying himself complacently in the glass, it pleased Mr. Toomey to be jocose. Say, old girl, how long will it take you to pack your war bag when I get this deal pulled off? It's a safe bet that this crossroads can't see me for dust once I get that commission in my mitt. He turned and looked at her sharply. What's the matter now, Mrs. Kiljoy? Where is it hurting the worst? Mrs. Toomey continued to powder the red tip of her nose until it showed pink. You're about as cheerful as an open grave. Takes all the heart out of me just to look at your face. Speak up, little sunbeam, and tell Papa what you got on your chest. Mrs. Toomey laid down the powder puff. What if there should be some slip-up, Jap? We're letting ourselves in for a dreadful disappointment, if we count on it too much. He shook off her hands from his shoulders with an exasperated twitch. You're the original death's head, Dell. Don't you suppose I know what I'm talking about? It'll go through, confidently. What makes you think it won't? Mrs. Toomey hesitated, then timidly. 
I can't get it out of my head, Jap, but that he's related to Kate. And if that should happen to be so, good Lord, so you've dug that up to worry about? Look here. If he had any interest in her, he'd have knocked me cold the first day he arrived. What do you mean? Mrs. Toomey asked quickly. Just that. Her name happened to come up, and I didn't mince my words in telling him about her past. Oh, Jap, whatever made you do that? His thin lips curled. Why shouldn't I? Damn her. I hate her somehow. That upstart, that gutter snipe. She laid her hand across his mouth. You shock me, Jap. I don't understand why you are so venomous toward Kate. Sometimes, she looked at him searchingly, I've wondered if you'd injured her. What do you mean? He breathed hard in sudden excitement. She stood for a moment, twisting a button on his coat, her eyes downcast, finally. Nothing much. In the office of the Prouty House, redolent of the juniper and spruce boughs which took the barrenness from the walls, the guests hungrily watched the hands of the clock creep toward the fashionable hour of eight. Among those present was Mr. Clarence Teeters, circulating freely in a full dress coat and gray trousers, the latter worn over a pair of high-heeled cowboy boots, and the former over a negligee shirt, beneath the cuffs of which two leather straps for strengthening the wrist peeped out. Fresh from the hands of the barber, Mr. Teeter's hair, sleek, glossy, fragrant, and brushed straight back, gave him a marked resemblance to a muskrat that had just come up from a dive. With a sublimated confidence that was sickening to such citizens as had known him when he worked for wages and wore overalls, and particularly to Toomey, who took Teeter's success upon the ranch where he himself had failed as a personal affront. Mr. Teeters flitted among the ladies, as impartial as a bee in a bed of hollyhocks, tossing off compliments with an ease which was a revelation to those who remembered the time when his brain stopped working in the presence of the opposite sex quite as effectually as though he had been hit with an axe. Toomey not only resented Teeter's presence, but the informality of his manner toward Prentice, which Toomey regarded as his special prerogative. He already had had an argument with Suds as to the advisability of including Teeters among the guests, and now, during a lull, his judgment was fully verified. Mr. Teeters, with a proud glance at the gaily draped room and at the table decorated with real carnations and festoons of smilax, which were visible through the double doors opening into the dining room, inquired of Prentice with a hearty friendliness. Say, fella, don't this swell layout kind of take you back to Chicago or New York? What further indiscretions of speech Teeters would have committed only his maker knows, for at the moment the clerk at the desk called his name in an imperative voice as the recipient of a telegram. Teeters had the attention of everybody in the room, and none could fail to observe his excitement as he folded the telegram and returned it to its envelope. I got me a dude coming in on the train, addressing Suds. Could you fix a place for him to eat? The train being late like this, he won't get any supper otherwise. 
I wasn't expecting him for a month yet. With an invitation thus publicly requisitioned, as it were, there was no alternative but to assent. The hands of the office clock were close to eight, when, as though on a signal, the hubbub of social intercourse ceased, and eyes followed eyes to the top of the stairs, where two white-slippered feet showed through the rungs of the balustrade, and a slim hand, sparkling with jewels, slipped gracefully along the polished rail. Then she appeared full length, in a white dinner gown, clinging, soft, exquisite in its simplicity and the perfection of its lines. With pearls in her ears and about her throat, her hair drawn back in a simple knot, Kate looked like one of the favorites of fortune, of whom the Proudyites read in the illustrated magazines and Sunday supplements. The least initiated were conscious of the perfect taste and skillful workmanship which had conspired to produce this result. Kate descended slowly, with neither undue deliberation nor haste. Upon her lips, the faint one-sided smile, which was characteristic. The moment was as dramatic as if the situation had been planned for the effect, since there were few present to whose minds did not leap to the picture of that other girl who had come bounding down the stairs, grotesque of dress, and as assured and joyous in her ignorance as a frisky colt. In a continued silence, which no one seemed to have the temerity or the presence of mind to break, the Sheep Queen turned at the foot of the stairway, and the various groups separated on a common impulse to let her pass. She went straight to Prentice, whose greetings was a smile of adoring tenderness. Am I late, father? The sharp intake of breath throughout the room might have come from one pair of lungs. Father. The rumor was true, then. Amazement came first, then uneasiness. What effect would the relationship have upon their personal interests? Had she any feeling which would lead her to use her influence to their detriment? Kate and her father would have had more than their share of attention anywhere for they had the same distinction of carriage, the same grave repose. Either one of them would have stood out in a far more brilliant assembly than that gathered in the Prouty House. The social training Miss Abram Patton had received at church functions in Keokuk now came to her rescue. Gathering herself, she was able to chirp, This is a surprise. You know my daughter, of course, to Mrs. Suds, whose jaw had dropped so that she stood slightly opened mouth, arrayed in a frock made in the fashion of the Moyen age, and recently handed down from a great-uncle's relic, who had passed on. Since this confection bulged where it should have clung, and clung where it should have bulged, it was the general impression that Mrs. Suds was out in a maternity gown. Mrs. Nefkin's in fourteen gores stood beside Mrs. Toomey in a hobble skirt, reminiscent of her Chicago trip, while a faint odor of mothballs, cedar chips, and gasoline permeated the atmosphere in the immediate vicinity of all this ancient elegance. "'We all have met,' Kate replied, and her glance included the group. While there was no emphasis to suggest that the sentence contained any special significance, 
yet each of the ladies was conscious of an uncomfortable warmth, and the wish that dinner would be announced was so unanimous that their heads turned simultaneously towards the dining-room, and quite as if the concentrated thought had produced the result, the proprietor of the Prouty House conveyed the information to Suds in a whisper from the corner of his mouth that all was in readiness. After some embarrassed uncertainty as to who was to conduct whom and which arm should be used, the guests filed into the dining-room at the hour when, commonly, they were preparing to retire. In the confusion, Mrs. Toomey found the opportunity to say, Jap, our goose is cooked. Adversity had sharpened her intuitions, developed her sensibilities. What others might fear she knew, and this commonplace held all her disappointment, all the chagrin and hopelessness that in an instant had dissipated the roseate dreams she had again dared to entertain. Toomey was too dazed to reply. What did it mean, he was asking himself in bewilderment, as he found the seat at the table which had been assigned to him. When he had disparaged and insulted Kate, why had Prentice not resented it verbally, knocked him down? Why had he made a secret of their relationship? Notwithstanding Governor Suds's best efforts, ably supported by Mr. Scales and Hiram Butefish, the banquet did not promise to be an unqualified success. There was a tension which did not make for proper appreciation of the excellently prepared food. In truth, nobody was entirely at his ease save Prentice and Kate and Abram Patton. The complacency of the cat who has eaten the canary was discontent beside the satisfaction upon Mr. Patton's face as he sent triumphant glances at his wife. It was well towards the end of the banquet that the belated train whistled, and Mr. Teeters excused himself, first reaching for a stalk of celery, which he ate as he went, and looking, as Mr. Butefish observed, to fill a pause, like a pig with a corn husk hanging out of its mouth. When the several courses had passed in review, the tension increased with the realization that the moment which meant so much to everyone present had arrived at last. So many times they had allowed themselves to hope, only to know disappointment. But Prentice inspired a confidence they never had had in the prospective investors who had gone before. He was of quite a different sort. But the most adroit questioning had failed to extract the slightest hint as to his intentions. In any event, they would soon be out of their suspense, and they waited, with an impatience not too well concealed, for Governor Suds to finish his labored speech. Toomey was called upon next, but he begged to be excused, intimating that he was a man of deeds, not words. Mr. Butefish then recounted the natural resources of the country, with a glibness that carried the suggestion that he could do the same in his sleep, and Mr. Scales arose to affirm his confidence in the day when Prouty would be heralded as the Denver of the state. Noting the growing signs of restlessness, the governor ignored the expectant looks of other prominent citizens and called upon Mr. Prentice, admitting, as though he were conceding a disputed fact, that the decision 
they were anticipating was a matter of interest, even of considerable concern to the town. So general was the appreciation of what Prentice's speech meant that the cook came out of the kitchen, and the waitresses hovered within hearing, as Prentice crumpled his napkin and slowly got up. He looked thoroughly the man of affairs and of the world in his faultless dinner clothes, while the air of power which emanated from him seemed to be something concrete, definite. In the pleasant voice and well-chosen words of one accustomed to thinking on his feet, he thanked the Boosters Club graciously for their hospitality and courtesies extended during his short stay in town. Then, without further preliminaries, he went direct to the subject which was uppermost in every mind. The project has merit. He was convinced of that. It would take considerable capital to enlarge the ditch and to put it in perfect condition, but the returns would warrant the outlay in time. The numerous failures had complicated the affairs of the company somewhat, but patience and the desire to be just would straighten these entanglements out. The loosening of tension as he talked evidenced itself in audible breaths and growing smiles upon every face. The encouraging words acted as the stimulant of a hypodermic in sluggish veins, eyes brightening and cheeks flushing at the mental picture conjured up by the prospect of getting their money back. It is a proposition, Prentice went on in his agreeable voice, which I should feel justified either in taking up or letting alone. While it is legitimate and safe in so far as I can see, I have on the other hand interests which claim a large share of my time, and this undertaking would be an additional demand. Therefore, his gaze traveled the length of the table and back to where Toomey sat. I have concluded to determine the matter by a somewhat unique means. I shall leave the decision to my daughter here. Prouty, one may say, is her home. She has grown up among you. Many of you, no doubt, she numbers among her friends. At any rate, she has the final say. I have informed her of my intention, but I have no more notion than yourselves what her answer will be. And, he added, I have quite as much curiosity. Blank surprise was followed by the exchange of startled, inquiring looks. Abram Patton was perhaps the only one who did not find some grounds for uneasiness. The swift transition from relief to their former state of suspense was marked, and their feelings found an outlet in a sudden nervous movement of hands and feet. The town had given her rather a hard deal in some ways. All were ready to admit that. But had she felt it, did she entertain resentment because of it? She looked so young, so feminine, so exquisitely soft, that somehow they thought not. Toomey's sallow skin had taken on a saffron shade, and Mrs. Toomey sat with her thin hands clenched in her lap, a strained smile fixed on her face, waiting for she knew not what. Turning in his chair, Prentice laid his hand upon the back of Kate's, and his keen worldly eyes shone with a peculiar satisfaction which human nature finds in its own flesh and blood when it reflects credit upon themselves. Immeasurable pride was in his face as he looked at her. The miracle of clothes, 
and an altered frame of mind had done wonders for Kate. The austere expression, the tense lines which came from responsibility and unhappiness, had been smoothed out, while much of the tan of her years in the open air had vanished in a few weeks in the moist climate of the East. She looked not more than twenty-two or three in the soft glow of the shaded light, and of the awkward self-conscious girl whom they remembered on that night in the same dining room, there was not a trace. She had the quiet assurance of authority, the poise of self-reliance and reserve force, but there was not a shade of triumph in her face at the power with which her father had vested her. There seemed not to be even heartbeats in the tense silence while Kate sat with her eyes downcast, clinking with her jeweled fingers a bit of ice against the side of her drinking glass. Even when she spoke finally, she did not look up, but began in a low, even voice. The fable that I read long ago keeps coming to me tonight, the story of a king, powerful and cruel, who, when his time came to appear before the great judge, the single entry in his favor that the recording angel could find was the whim which had induced him, when walking one day, to have a pig that he saw suffering in the gutter put out of its misery. The story is applicable in that as I sit here, I realize that in all the years I have been among you, there is only one. She raised her eyes and indicated Teeter's empty chair. Whoever has done me the smallest disinterested kindness. Until I got beyond the need of it, I cannot remember one unselfish, friendly act, or at a time when every man's hand was against me, one sympathetic word or look. It sounds incredible, but it is the truth. It seems the irony of fate, indeed, that this decision, which means so much to you, should rest with me. She stopped and lowered her eyes again to the glass, which she twirled slowly as she deliberated, as if choosing the words which should most exactly express her thoughts. She began again. You will excuse me if I speak much of myself, but there is no other way to make clear what I have to say. She paused for a breathless moment and went on. We all have our peculiarities of temperament and mind, our individual idiosyncrasies, to distinguish us, and they are as marked as physical characteristics, and it happens to be mine that either a kindness or an injury is something to be paid in full as surely as a promissory note, if it is possible to do so. The debts I owe you are for acts of wanton cruelty that one would have to look to Indians to find in their counterpart, for deliberate insults that had not even the excuse of personal animus to justify them but were due solely to the cowardness which likes to strike where it is safe, the eagerness to hurt, which it seems to be the first instinct of small minds and natures. I have no taste to rehearse my grievances, but it is necessary that you may quite understand why it is that I feel as I do towards you. Somewhat in the tone of a person reciting a lesson, she continued, I was a young girl when I first came among you, to the dance here, into this very room. I was ignorant, unsophisticated. 
I met you with my hand outstretched, yearning for your friendship, and you would as well have struck me in my upturned face as do what you did. I had no mother, no woman friend to tell me that I was absurd in my paper flowers and the dress that I had made with my inexperienced fingers, and could find no excuse for my ridiculous appearance, but enjoyed it openly. When you laughed in my face, you had not yet inflicted pain enough to satisfy you. You had to turn the knife to see me quiver, and you did, mercilessly, relishing my humiliation when I had to leave. There was not one among you generous enough to make allowance for my youth and inexperience and spare me. You saw only that I was absurd in my fantastic clothes and overly anxious to be friendly. I was the daughter of Jezebel the Sand Coulee and the protege of a sheep herder. I did not know you then as I do now, for your pose of superiority impressed me. I took you at your own valuation and overestimated you so I was all but crushed by your condemnation. I was like a child that is whipped without knowing for what it is being punished. She paused a moment before going on. Worse things came to me afterwards, but none from which I suffered more keenly, in a different way perhaps, but not more acutely. The wounds you inflicted that night left scars that have never healed entirely. The turning point in my life came when Mormon Joe was murdered. He was more than a guardian and a benefactor. He had been father, mother, teacher to me. But with no other grounds than that I benefited by his death, the stigma of murder was placed upon me. There was not evidence to hold me, so I remained a suspect, proven neither guilty nor innocent. The murder was a little more than an agreeable break in the monotony to most of you, but it revolutionized the world for me, changed the whole scheme of my life, and, with a smile that was tinged with bitterness, demonstrated to my entire satisfaction the extent which character is affected by environment. She went on thoughtfully. I have come to believe that to know human nature, at least to know it as its worst, one must be the victim of some discreditable misfortune in a small community. Moral cowardice, ingratitude, the greed which is ready to take advantage of someone unable to make an effective protest, the gratuitous insults offered the underdog because he is helpless to fight back. He discovers it all, and when all is done, he has little faith in human nature left. This experience I had at your hands, to the last ounce. I know the friendship that couldn't stand the gaff of public opinion, the ingratitude that makes no count of personal sacrifice, the rapacity that takes it to the border of dishonesty to attain its end. Yet, curiously enough, after the lapse of years, these things shrink into comparative insignificance beside the uncalled-for insolence, unwarranted affronts, which were offered me by many of you with whom I had not even a speaking acquaintance. My friendlessness aroused no pity in your hearts. I was only an unresisting target at which to throw a convenient stone. For years I stood out in the open, as it were, with the storms to whip the life out of me, 
and not one of you offered me a cloak. Upon any nature, this experience would have had its effect. Most women, I think, it would have crushed. In me it developed traits that in other circumstances might have always laid dormant. Along with a pride that was tremendous, it aroused a desire for revenge that was savage in its ferocity. I've lived for some such hour as this, worked and sacrificed my happiness for it. If it could have been of my own planning, I could not have conceived of a more gratifying situation than this. I know how much my decision means to you. I know that there isn't one here who would not be affected directly or indirectly by the collapse of this project, that it will take years for you to get back even to the position you were in when you came, quite as well as I realize that its completion would put you on your feet. She stopped again while they waited for her to go on in a silence that was painful. When I visualized the day in my waking dreams, I've wondered if I should weaken and forgive my enemies, as they always do in books, if any argument could move me to relent, if any impulse would soften me toward you, if I might not even pity you. One never knows, but I thought not, and I was right. The desperation of your situation isn't the sort of pathos that appeals to me. I find that in my nature there is nothing noble that pleads for you. I neither pity nor forgive you. Yet this moment is a disappointment. Instead of the sweetness of revenge, I feel only indifference, for I realize, as never before, how I magnified your importance, that I looked at you through the wrong end of the telescope, and along with my apathy is a feeling of dismay that I have spent all these years working to retaliate upon foes that are not worth what it has cost. The worst thing one could wish you is to be yourselves, for there isn't one among you who has the qualities to lift him above his present level of mediocrity. A resentful movement to go was initiated by Governor Suds. Wait a moment. Kate raised her hand imperiously. I presume you think you have your answer. She shook her head slowly. Then, with increased deliberation, I told you that I always pay my debts. I owe my success to you. It is my enemies who have given me the patience to sit hour after hour and herd sheep, not for weeks or months, but for years. It is my enemies who have given me the courage to stagger on through cold and snow when the blood in my veins was ice. It is my enemies who have given me the endurance to work in emergencies until I have dropped, to endure poverty, loneliness, derision, and worse. When failures have knocked me down, it is you, my enemies, who have given me the strength to pick myself up and go on. Because of you, I am better able to appreciate true friendship, integrity, that many qualities which go to make up greatness of mind and heart, and that in happier circumstances I have learned do exist. So you see, if you had taken much, perhaps you have given more, and I have an obligation to discharge. Therefore, she turned to her father with a slightly inquiring look, if the decision still remains with me, I should like to know that the project will go through. The tense, pent-up feelings of the guests 
found an outlet in long-drawn breaths and indignant but unconvincing murmurs that they'd rather starve, which did not prevent all attention focusing on Prentice, whose face wore a forbidding grimness, from which all semblance of friendliness had long since fled. If I had known, if I had dreamed of half of this, I am frank to confess that you could not have interested me in this proposition for a hundredth part of a second. But it will be completed, because it is my daughter's wish, however, with cold emphasis, upon my own terms. You may or may not know that the involved affairs of the project leave it practically optional with a new company whether they recognize the claims against former companies or repudiate these debts. The local claims amount to something like $65,000, which is a sum of considerable importance distributed in a town this size. I intend to pay these claims in full, largely as a matter of sentiment. Presuming that among those affected there were at least a few of my daughter's friends. What she has said tonight gives the matter a new face. It is now a business proposition with me. I am no philanthropist where my interests or affections are not concerned. The offer I am about to make you can take or you can leave. But I have a notion self-interest will prevail over your temporary pick, since you no doubt realize that unless something is done almost immediately, this segregated land will revert to the state. I will not pay any debts of former companies, and I will take over the controlling stock, not at the figure at which you are holding it, but at what I consider a fair price. I will enlarge the ditch and complete the project so that it will meet every requirement of the state's engineers and turn it over to the settlers under it when it has been demonstrated to be a complete success. They thought he had done, and again looked at each other with deep-drawn breaths when he resumed. There is one more condition upon which I insist. It is that in the purchase of the stock I deal with the stockholders direct. There shall be no commission paid to a go-between. He looked at Toomey as they spoke. My reason for this is purely personal, but nevertheless my offer rests upon this stipulation. There was no mistake in the finality of his tone or the cold enmity of his voice. In a night of surprises, this seemed the climax. What did it mean? Since there had not been the slightest hint that two-man Prentice were not the warmest of friends. In the dramatic silence, each could hear his neighbor breathe. Toomey looked stunned. Then, as he recovered himself, the vein in his temple swelled, and his sallow face darkened to ugly belligerence. "'I don't understand this,' he cried, raising his voice as he endeavored to return Prentice's steely gaze with one of defiance. "'But I'll serve notice now that I'll have the commission to which I am entitled, or I'll sue for it and tie the whole thing up.'" Governor Suds started to his feet, the voice a hot protest, as did other leading citizens, who saw the chance to rehabilitate their fortunes vanish at the threat. But they were overshadowed, overborne, by the more vigorous personality of Mr. Teeters, who suddenly dominated the scene from the door in the dining-room, where he had been listening intently. 
As if no longer able to contain himself, Teeters strode forward, shaking at Toomey the finger of emphasis. Then he cried, You'll do your suing from a cell. If I hold in any longer, I'm going to choke. I'm going to speak if she won't. He motioned towards Kate. I want these folks to know what that yellow back has been keeping to himself all these years, for some reason that only himself and the Almighty knows. He owned the gun that killed Mormon Joe. He sold it to the breed, Mullendore. He could have proved Kate Prentice's innocence at any time he wanted to, and he kept his mouth shut. I'm no legal sharp, but I won't believe there ain't some law that'll put the likes of him where he belongs. Toomey shrank under the attack as though beneath actual blows. He seemed to contract beneath the focused gaze of eyes that contained anger, scorn, in some instances incredulity. He looked for a moment as though he were going to faint. Then he clutched the edge of the tablecloth in a convulsive grip and shouted with an attempt at his old braggadocio. It's a lie. It's the truth, Teeter thundered opposite. Mullendore confessed. Anyhow, I've got other proof. The original owner of the gun who left it at your house when he was a kid. Fella, come out. Diston. Toomey gasped as Hugh stepped from the semi-dusk of the corridor into the light. The thing he had feared most since some ugly perversity of his nature had kept him silent because of his dislike of Mormon Joe and Kate had come to pass. In the swift movement of events, matters of more interest were transpiring than Toomey's nervous collapse. With a cry that has no counterpart, save as it comes straight from a woman's heart, Kate had sprung to her feet and gone to Diston with her hands outstretched. Huey, Huey, you've come back. Speak, say something, so that I'll know that I'm awake. The Boosters Club and its guest did not exist for Kate. Katie, Katie Prentice, is this wonderful girl you? His face was radiant with admiration and amazement as he held her at arm's length. For months and months, Huey, she said softly, I've wanted to tell you that I was wrong and you were right. There is nothing of any great importance except love. Without it, success is empty, empty as a gourd. Tell me, Huey, tell me quick, that it isn't too late to make amends for my mistake. His answer was already in distance eyes, so his whisper was superfluous. I told you it was for always, Kate. End of chapter 30 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas End of the Fighting Shepherdess by Caroline Lockhart